This is Brian Kabatek back with Shant Karnikian and Civil Action. This is our weekly or semi-weekly program where we try to distill down important cases that affect the plaintiff lawyer civil practice in California and around California and people that are interested in the law. We cover cases from California Court of Appeals, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, Sometimes the Supreme Court, like today, if we find them interesting, if we think they might affect your practice, or if we just think they're interesting cases. So we've got a bunch of cases we're covering today, right, Sean? That's right. We have uh, five cases that we're covering. Wait, you're supposed to first tell people about their ability to contact us. Please don't contact us. No, I'm kidding. If you have any feedback for us, you can reach us online at kbklawyers.com or on all social media at Cabotech LLP. Or you can just write feedback or an angry review or talk about how boring Brian is here in the uh, uh, review section under Apple Podcast, or uh, you can follow us on Spotify or other platforms, and we'd love to hear from you, actually. Does Facebook count as social media? It, it does count as social media. And that's relevant today, so let's talk about some of the cases we're going to talk about. Relevant because the first case we're going to talk about involves Facebook and the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, um, so that's a federal case. And then we're going to talk about a case that has to do with relief under 473, relief uh, for a default. Oh, and, it's much uh, more than that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more than that. It's lawyers getting petty. It's a blood feud, really. Uh, so that's going to be exciting. Then we're going to talk about a case uh, that involves professional negligence and CPAs screwing up on someone's taxes and the statute of limitations that govern that. Then we're going to talk about a um, rule that clarifies Rule 4-2, which uh, involves contacting re- represented parties um, in who counts as a represented party and who doesn't. And lastly, we are going to talk about that Supreme Court case called Manhattan Community Access Corp., which involves the First Amendment. Not necessarily applicable to our practice, but super interesting case. It kind of shows how the um, split is now going to come out often between the conservatives and liberal justices. All right, so let's jump into our first case today, which looks like Dugud, Dujud versus Facebook. Maybe Deguid. Deguid versus Facebook. Okay. If someone knows how to pronounce this, please feel free to call in and, and uh, you know, we'd appreciate that. But it's a uh, Ninth Circuit case uh, against Facebook and involves TCPA, that's Telephone Consumer Protection Act claims against what, What's Facebook. the basic rule in the, the Telephone Claims Protection Act, TCPA? You can't have an auto dialer that calls people automatically or not, not just numbers that you have stored in there, but also randomly generated numbers for purposes of anything, whether it's to collect a debt, whether it's to advertise something, you just can't do that unless they've consented to it. And there are a couple of exceptions to it. So really interesting, Facebook took the position that the case was unconstitutional. That's right. Uh, so, or that the TCPA is unconstitutional. Yeah, uh, Facebook tried to fight it on its merits by arguing they're not using an auto dialer, that there's an emergency exception applies. But what this case really is about, it's, it's a First Amendment case, and Facebook took the position. All of a sudden, Facebook's trying to protect people's First Amendment rights when they're not encroaching on them. Uh, they took the position that um, the TCPA and an amendment to the TCPA renders it unconstitutional. Renders the whole thing unconstitutional. The whole thing. But before Throw we get there, out. the basic facts of the case are that Mr. De Guid? De Guid? I don't Guid. know. Okay, don't know. Mr. De Guid is not even a Facebook customer, and yet he started getting these so-called robocalls from Facebook telling him that he had to delete his account. Or, or, or his account has been compromised, someone's been trying to log into his account, but he doesn't have an account, which, by got, the way, is a fact that Brian found surprising. I found surprising because I thought everybody in America had a Facebook account, and then I was reminded that people it's not cool under anymore. 20 I told, yeah, I told probably him. do not have any Facebook accounts, and people over 90 do not have any Facebook accounts. 
And I told him Facebook's not really that cool anymore. And he said, but I have a Facebook. I said, exactly. Right. That's right. So thank you for that. Thank you for that plug. But I believe that Facebook um, still has a place in America and they do good work, like helping get Donald Trump elected, right? That's right, helping the Russians. So Helping the Russians. So he doesn't have a Facebook account. He sues in a class action and says, you violated the TCPA. And the real crux of this case is that um, Facebook argues that they have standing to raise an argument that the statute is unconstitutional because it violates the First Amendment. And the Ninth Circuit agrees that they have standing. They agree they have standing to look at the challenge for it being unconstitutional, and then they look at the First Amendment challenge. So what's the the fundamental basis of the First Amendment challenge? So one of the exceptions to the TCPA is an amendment that was passed in 2015 that says that the TCPA doesn't apply if it's um, to, to collect a debt owed or guaranteed by the United States government. Solely to collect a debt owed to or guaranteed by the United States, and I have taken to call this 2015 amendment the shunt Carnickian Amendment. And why is that, Brian? That is because it is so clearly transparently designed to allow robocalling and no violation of the TCPA to collect on student loans. Student loan debt, that's right. And student loan, so it, in 2015, the, uh, the student debt crisis in this country is starting to ramp up as a huge problem. Uh, I, I don't think it's even reached its apex yet. But the federal government decides TCPA, really good law, but we don't want it to apply to us. Yeah, so they passed this uh, amendment, and other circuits have found it. I think the Fourth Circuit, for example, found that uh, it's unconstitutional. And the reasoning behind finding it unconstitutional is because it is content-based in its regulation of speech. And uh, the argument being made here by Facebook is that this is content-based, and the government was arguing that, well, even if it is content-based, it gets strict scrutiny, but it passes strict scrutiny because there's a compelling government interest. Not so fast, government. In fact, what the Ninth Circuit says in this case is that it is content-based, and there is no exception for it. Um, The purpose and the content is specifically what it's directed at, so it's presumptively unconstitutional and may be justified only if the government proves that it's narrowly tailored and that there was no other way to do it, and the Ninth Circuit had said there was other ways to be able to— Right, Congress can pass pass in it in a way that's content neutral. So, But then Facebook says, well, as a result of that, the whole TCPA should be thrown out. We can't be held liable. The whole statute should be thrown out. And the the court, court says not so fast Facebook this time, and they say no, we can sever it. That's been done in other circuits as well. Uh, so they go ahead and sever that language from it and find and don't uh, find it unconstitutional. Right. I mean, this is on the pleadings anyways. So basically, at the end of the day, they find that the plaintiff has adequately alleged a claim of a violation of TCPA, and the case can go forward. Um, so those people who pursue TCPA claims. It's alive and well. This doesn't affect it. They sever it, and the case can go forward. So what's our next case? Next case is a second district court of appeal case called United Grand Corp versus, great great name, uh, Malibu Hillbillies LLC. Love that name. And love this case. It's a very interesting case. So the plaintiff here, United Grand Corporation, filed a complaint against Malibu Hillbillies LLC someone by the name of Marcy Stoloff, who's a member of Malibu Hillbillies LLC, and two other defendants. And uh, the plaintiff claimed that Malibu Hillbillies owed rent to them. It's a landlord-tenant dispute. Landlord-tenant dispute. It's a landlord-tenant dispute over approximately $50,000 in unpaid rent. 
which isn't a, a huge, like, earth-shattering amount. But if you hear a little bit about the subsequent dealings that went on between these parties, you will be blown away. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that shook out, Brian? No, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that shook out? Fine. It, it is, there are interesting facts here. And ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the, they got a default judgment. The, the plaintiff, the, the landlord, got a default judgment against Malibu Hillbillies, Malibu Hillbillies, and they had a judgment for almost $2 million in attorney fees, claiming they were owed $2 million in attorney fees to collect a $50,000 debt, which shocks the conscience, right? right? And one of the problems we have in our legal system, in my humble opinion, is it is too expensive for people to pursue litigation, but this, is, this sort of stretches the balance of credulity. Yeah, and it wastes court resources to have to have that motion decided and and arguing for two million dollars in fees on it. Right. I mean, in this case judgment. alone, I think I counted four or five different LA Superior Court judges who were involved. Yeah. So what what, what happened here in the default is so plaintiff took a default uh, against Stoloff and Malibu for less than fifty thousand dollars. Now, there's a provision in the Code of Civil Procedure, 473, subsection B, that allows for relief from default if you can show that the default was the result of an attorney's mistake, inadvertence, surprise, or neglect. And that is the motion that both Stoloff and Malibu made over here. Um, And they argued – they attached a declaration from an attorney in Maryland uh, by the name of Cohen claiming that – and not Michael Cohen. I don't think it's the president's lawyer. Who's no. now in jail? Right. Um, they attached a declaration from an attorney in Maryland named Cohen, who said, "I'm the attorney here. This default was the result of my mistake or inadvertence or neglect. So please give us relief from default." Which, on its face, the court's supposed to grant, right? That's right. And um, but in opposition, the plaintiff here attached a number of emails and other communications and a declaration showing that actually, initially, a lawyer from Oxnard, California, which is very far from Maryland, contacted the plaintiff and said he represents both of the parties. Nothing about Cohen yet. Right. Wasn't there some fairly significant evidence that Cohen wasn't even the lawyer? That's right. There was specific evidence that showed that Cohen represented multiple times that he is Stoloff's lawyer, and he even said in phone calls and possibly in writing that he specifically does not represent Malibu because there's a potential for conflict there. So, and then... Malibu didn't even file a reply to that opposition. Stoloff did. So the court said there's a really low threshold here under 473B, and you just have to show a declaration from an attorney. Over here, we don't see any evidence that this attorney that submitted a declaration even represents Malibu or that the default was his fault or related to him. So issue number one is if you're going to take advantage of 473, you better be the lawyer who's falling on his or her sword. That's right. Not you do, you, the lawyer or somebody else because it'll be disregarded. Lesson number two is... Uh, in this case, the defendant um, actually deposited money, right? Somebody deposited money yeah. in the court to satisfy at least the judgment, not the attorney's fees, but the judgment. But then the plaintiff, without permission, went ahead and withdrew that money, and that was bad, and that pissed off the judge. So that's a big no-no. If money is deposited no. with the court without the court's permission, don't take the money? Right, don't take the money. Okay. And then rule number three is... The court said throughout its opening and reply brief, the plaintiff repeatedly disparaged the trial court judges and the quality of their legal work, and even went so far as characterize one judge's findings as gibberish and legal nonsense. So don't disparage judges. Don't 
And seriously, I, I got to write these down. Don't disparage judges to the Court of Appeal because they're still their colleagues. Many judges from the Court of Appeal came from the Superior Court. They look at that very offensively. You don't ever go personal attack on them. They don't like that. They don't like personal attack between lawyers. Imagine what they think about a personal attack with between um, lawyers and judges. With yeah. judges. Yeah. So that's your next lesson. And then the next one is that the plaintiff ignored most of the trial court's findings of misconduct and failed to provide adequate citations to support its claims. That's your next rule. So don't do that. Okay. Don't, don't do that. Don't right? just make arguments without citing to things. Okay. Right. And then don't forfeit your arguments by failing to raise them in a timely fashion. That's the next thing. And then the final thing to take away from this case is, uh, well, I think the big picture to take away from this case, to be serious for a moment, is... When people start getting involved in these blood feuds, I don't know how to end them. Uh, I don't know how to de-escalate them sometimes when the other side just is crazy. But um, try to act with complete professionalism. I think in this case, at least from reading the record, the defendant did. um, Because ultimately what happened is the lawyer for the plaintiff was found actually guilty of contempt. That isn't – that's bad. Okay. That's not a good outcome? It's bad. And – was actually sentenced to jail time until he performed the act specified in the court's order. That doesn't sound good either. That's not good. And then when he was released on his own recognizance, he filed a writ of mandate, habeas corpus, or other relief, and that was denied in April of 2018. But, but uh, how does this all end? Does the opinion end with, he, you know, everything's, everyone lived happily? The opinion after? ends with the fact that the plaintiff's lawyer never reported to jail, the trial court issued a bench warrant for his arrest, and he's currently a fugitive from justice. Are you a fugitive from justice? I am not as far as you know. Have you ever been sentenced by a, by a civil trial court judge? Sentenced? No. Okay. Not, never sentenced. Never sentenced. Willing That's to good. learn, but not That's sentenced. Good. You're already ahead of this guy. So, no, the real lesson here is if you are making a 470, the practical, look, there's a lot of lessons. Don't go to jail. Don't disparage judges. But the practical everyday lesson, uh, which may come up often, is if you're making a 473B motion for relief, whatever kind of relief, make sure you clarify if the mistake really is your fault or your uh, the result of your neglect, make sure you clarify that and explain how you're related to it. Because if you're not involved in that, you can't just submit a, a blanket declaration that says, I screwed up. You need to indicate what you're relationship is with a party. You can't belatedly step in and say, I screwed up, so give the party relief from default. You need to establish that you were working for them in some way. All right. So let's run on to our next case here. Um, Moss versus Duncan. Moss versus Duncan. So this case involves um, professional negligence against a financial advisor, in this case, a uh, CPA, um, I think one of the things to take away from this case before we get into the facts is be careful of statute of limitations in all cases. They're not the same in all professional negligence cases. Uh, they're different for attorney malpractice or attorney negligence as opposed to financial advisor negligence. And in this case, the facts are, are fairly basic. The allegations are that the tax advisor, the CPA, gave bad advice. The bad advice resulted in it went went down in 2000, I think it's six. In 2010, the Franchise Tax Board. What's the Franchise Tax Board, Sean? Um, the state's kind of version of the IRS. Right. And they notified that they were auditing the return in 2010. 
I think in 2011, they sent a proposed assessment of $1.2 million, but that proposed assessment was not actually a collection. It was a notice. It's a proposed assessment. I mean, the name in and of itself kind of shows how um, not final it is. Right. And the the plaintiff in this case, the taxpayer, went on for, for, I think, for four years to litigate this issue and to try to resolve it. And finally... In May of 2015, they paid a negotiated tax liability as well as $50,000 in professional fees, um, and they filed a complaint within about three months against the uh, tax advisor, against the CPA, and the CPA came back and said, you blew the statute of limitations. Interestingly, in this case, um, I believe that the trial court agreed, and they said that the statute of limitations started to run in 2011 when the Franchise Tax Board issued its Or initial, even as early so, as 2010 when the Franchise Tax Board first contacted them about the about the tax liability. Two-year statute of limitations yep. for accountant negligence, yep. for financial advisor negligence. Two-year statute of limitations, two years from the date of damage. The court said you were damaged in 2011. The Court of Appeal disagreed. Right. Court of Appeal said um, the... Statute of limitations for professional negligence commences when all of the elements are met. And going back to basics again, Brian, what are the elements of negligence? Duty breach, causation, and damage. Damages. That's and there the final was no one. Damage. There was no damages here. So the cause of action hadn't crystallized. If the plaintiff here tried to bring the action any earlier than when they agreed to pay the $50,000 to the Franchise Tax Board, they, they wouldn't be able to succeed right. on their claim. So, so the claim didn't exist. The defendant's argument, though, here that the statute of limitations is blown was not completely without some argument because there, there's a case going back to 1995. There is. Which I consider to be a case from 1995 being an old case, but not an ancient case because any case that came down while I've been practicing law is old, but not ancient. Right. And that case is Federson, California Supreme Court, except the difference in Federson, similar facts, but the difference in Federson was that the IRS had actually issued a um, notice after the appeal process had ended, after the case was over, uh, going through, working its way through to where the tax was actually due at that point. It was collectible. The IRS could start enforcement or collection proceedings. Over here, that proposed assessment doesn't entitle the Franchise Tax Board to go ahead and start putting a tax lien or try to collect on that debt. So there was no damage in that case, whereas in Federson there was damage. So that's how it distinguished it from Federson. And the important point to remember here for lawyers is statute of limitations are different in professional negligence. This is a financial advisor statute of limitations. Legal malpractice has a statutory, legislative, constructed statute of limitations, which is much more a bright-line rule. It's one year. It's one year after the plaintiff discovers or through the use of reasonable inference or investigation should have discovered the facts constituting the act. And, of course, there's also the rule about one year after you withdraw from the representation or the representation ends. It's not the same rule here. So know your statute of limitations. The lesson no- here look at, is look at each different profession, each one, medical malpractice, legal malpractice. You have CPAs here. Look at each one of them. It's going to be very different. Don't just think of it as like negligence. We have we have time. It's all the same. All right, we've got two more cases to cover today. Uh, the the next one that we're going to cover is Jane Doe versus Superior Court. The real party in interest is Southwestern Community College District. It's from the Fourth DCA. This case involves sexual harassment and sexual assault by a student employee of the campus police department for Southwestern Community College District. 
Uh, it involved some act of um, sexual assault, at least alleged, against one of the police officers on campus. And the initial important fact is that the complaint itself alleged that Jane Doe was not the only victim. It also mentioned someone named Andrea, who was also an employee of the district, who was so also... So we know there's other victims. It's al- not just At least the alleged Doe. there were yeah. other victims. And so there was going to be a deposition of Andrea taken, and before the deposition was taken, um, the lawyer for the plaintiff reached out, interviewed Andrea, had a conversation with her, apparently found that there were allegations of sexual misconduct against her as well, and even went so far as to be retained by her. So the plaintiff lawyer, in this case, was retained by Andrea as her lawyer. And as a result of that, the district found out about it, their lawyer found out about it, and they filed a motion to disqualify the plaintiff's lawyer on the ground that you talk to a represented party in this case because she was an employee of the defendant and you're not allowed to talk to her. So I'm just going to stop here and say this is often a misunderstood or misconstrued rule. A lot of lawyers don't understand who you can and can't talk to when you're suing a corporate or a, um, uh, a large governmental or entity. Or a government entity, yeah. Or anybody like we that. We see it all the time. We want to take the deposition of so-and-so, and they say, well, no, they work for us to represent. You can't talk to them. You can't talk to them. You can't even talk to them. And that's not necessarily true. This case kind of clarifies that. So rule- The trial court did disqualify this The lawyer. trial court did, yeah. We should note that. The trial court agreed with defendant, and it's not you too far. You can't talk to anybody no. who's associated with these facts. That's what they held. So let's just take a break here and talk about Ultimately, because I think it's important this rule be very clear, who can you and can you not talk to in this kind of setting of a corporation or a governmental entity? Um, so Rule 4.2, I believe, dictates it, and it says that in the case of a represented governmental organization, the rule prohibits communications with a current employee of the organization. So far, she falls into this umbrella, but then it clarifies, if the subject of the communication is any act or omission of such person in connection with the matter which may be binding right. upon them. So percipient witnesses who are non um Non-managers, yes, non-actors, they just could be victims themselves, are fair game. Or just recipient witnesses, so long as it's not the person that's being accused of wrongful conduct. It's not a principal, it's not a director, it's not a corporate officer, it's not a corporate agent, something like that. You can talk to them because that person is not involved in the dispute. And in fact, doesn't the court here go on to say that if we agreed with the defendant's proposal here or their interpretation of these rules, it would really eviscerate someone like Andrea's ability to find counsel, to get another their way. own counsel. Well, and really that leads to the second part of the decision that's important because somewhere along the line here, the lawyer for the district came out and said, um, we're representing her or we're going to represent her for the purpose of her deposition or we need to get conflict counsel to represent her, but we're going to have a lawyer. And so there's no evidence in the record. In fact, there's contrary evidence in the record that Andrea ever consented to that representation. So the mere act of a corporation or a governmental entity or some kind of an entity like this coming out and saying, I am hereby now representing this person is not enough. There has to be consent by the current employee that they're represented by the lawyer. Without that, it's just the lawyer saying, I'm representing him. It's like you could cast a giant blanket over everybody inside the corporation. And it's really illusory. It's not, it's not a real representation. Right, representation. and I don't think they drilled 
hard enough on this in the court on this issue because, and I think subsequent decisions need to cover this more because I really think the rule has to be that there would have to be some affirmative statement by the employee that yes, law firm X or or attorney Y is now representing me because otherwise they could cast this big blanket and say, we represent everybody. You can't contact anybody. And we know that that's not true. We know that you can contact people who aren't managing agents, who are witnesses, who may be victims themselves. And clearly that's what this, this opinion holds. In fact, this opinion goes so far as to say where a plaintiff employee claiming harassment or hostile work environment seeks to rely on evidence of similar misconduct to other employees, even current employees, that there's nothing here that would prohibit the lawyer or representatives of the lawyer from contacting them. So great decision. Good rule to remember. I, right. And, and anything where you can get a bright line rule is super important. So we're going to cover now sort of the dessert here of our, um, of our podcast today, which is this Supreme Very Court interesting case. Supreme Court case. Manhattan Community Access Corp versus Halleck. And Halleck is a some sort of a producer, and it involves also another poet or playwright by the name of Jesus Melendez. So, Manhattan Community Access Corp., on the other hand, is a private but nonprofit corporation designated by New York City, the city of New York, to operate the public access channels um, in the Manhattan cable system. Now, what... Is this a public access channel, Brian, that we're on right now? No, this is not a public access. We're not government actors, and we can say anything we want to say. Anything? So I can Any say anything about damn you? thing. Any, Any damn thing we want to say. That's risky right there. That's obscene speech. Okay. But this is actually being broadcast over the airwaves. It's part of the Manhattan Community Access. And what happened here is that the plaintiffs in the case had a video that the um, the channel, the nonprofit organization, determined was somehow threatening. Uh, it contained threatening language. They went so far as to uh, ban. It aired once, and then they ban- and then they refused to air it again, and then they even banned the second person uh, for Jesus life. Melendez. For life, that's a long time. You're banned from public access for life, unless it's me. It would be a short time, but right. <laughs> Right. But so this case involves the First Amendment, which bars the government from restricting freedom of speech, uh, but it doesn't apply to private actors well, like corporations. The, right. So it clearly doesn't apply to private actors, and it clearly applies to the government. But then you get into the gray zone in cases like this where you're dealing with someone who is a quasi-public or at least arguably quasi-public actor. And the argument in this case is that the uh, Manhattan um, Public Access, Community Access Corporation – is effectively a government actor by design. It's, it's, it's called the state action or state actor doctrine, where right. if you if the government delegates it, uh, delegates something that the, normally the government would do, then this rule, uh, the First Amendment, does apply to them and regulates them. 5-4 decision written by? Justice Kavanaugh, who likes? Beer. That's right. He likes beer. Beer. That, that's Occasional all we know about beer. so far. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's his legacy. And he wrote so this far. decision, and he found, uh, with the conservatives in the court, he found that this is not it's a It's not a state actor, actor not right. regulated by the First Amendment, can't be sued for violating the First Amendment. And, and, and to me, it's, it's bizarre, because it is public access. By definition, it's public access. And by definition, um, New York uh, delegated to this entity, the Manhattan Community Access Corporation, the right to run it. 
Right. So it would. And be- Halleck had a good argument. Halleck was arguing that the operation of a public forum, like if this was a street or a park or somewhere like that where people speak freely, the First Amendment would apply in Right. And speech. if you simply hired a nonprofit organization to run Central Park, for example, right. and you said you're now in charge speech. of running it, and they you, couldn't regulate they speech. Could, apparently, according to this decision, they could regulate speech. So, well, according yeah, according to this decision, they could because Kavanaugh said, after all, private property owners and private lessees often open their property for speech, and they can regulate. It and it's not applicable to them. So I find that to be a weird, inapplicable analogy. The dissent analogy. found that the city of New York had a property interest in the channel and that the regulations that they entered were actually in furtherance of the governmental interest, even though it was a private corporation that had been delegated to. Yeah, yeah. So, so – and – so, you know, this is a hey, – I these think it hurts the First Amendment. Hurts I think the First Amendment. It doesn't apply to our practice too much, but it's interesting. Now, you've, you've been involved in drafting a lot of legislation, Brian, in Sacramento. Were you involved at all in drafting the First Amendment? Do I have to respond to that? I don't think I have to respond to that. It's a legitimate question. Hey, what would be interesting, though, and maybe we'll do this in a future episode, is pick the 10 or 15 most significant cases from the United States Supreme Court's term – which has just recently come to an end. Let's go through them. Let's let's talk about them because while it doesn't directly apply to our practice, I still think it's important for all lawyers and, frankly, all people who are interested in government in the United States to know what the Supreme Court's doing. Um, as I often say, very few of the decisions that the United States Supreme Court issues are related to criminal law. Yet because criminal law for the general public is so titillating and so interesting, it seems to take precedence. But so many of these decisions directly or indirectly affect average everyday ordinary Americans and affect lawyers and it's important for us to know about it. So hopefully this has been a good session you've enjoyed today. We're going to do another one in the near future about some new cases that come down. We appreciate you listening to Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnickian on Kabatek LLP's Civil Action. And if you have any feedback, like I said, you can leave comments on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe and um, you know, find us online at kbklawyers.com and on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP.